Welcome to Rencast. My name is Kate Mile, and I run the writing support service Renco, which stands for Written English Collaboration. I love writing, but, and this may sound a little sacrilegious, I prefer talking. I want the words I write to be witnessed, to have life breathed into them. Last week, I wrote about having all the answers, or at least most of them, enough to stay ahead of my kids as they got up to speed in the world. But this week, I'm a hopeless case. They are way ahead of me, except maybe when it comes to driving. By the way, I noticed as I recorded this week that a lot of fireworks were going off at the church near us. The church is called San Isidro. And I'm somewhat disappointed to report that the fireworks are not particularly beautiful. They're really just for loud banging sound. But they are what they are. I live where I live, so I hope you can excuse that. Here goes. It's probably the most enduringly American thing about me. Though I'm not from out west like my friend Andy, who'll comfortably drive nine hours one way on a given Friday, only to make the return trip again on Sunday, I really don't mind spending a good three or four hours in the car driving around my home in northern New England. Living in Maine, one of my favorite things to do was to drive up and down the coast, especially in the off-season, stopping at antique stores and junk barns followed by a meal of grilled cheese with tomato on white bread and a side of thick-cut fries at the town diner. When we had some money, my favorite thing to do was to spend it on a couple nights at the Mount Washington Resort in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, a magnificent old hotel with spectacular views of the presidential range of the White Mountains and easy access to the scenic drive of the Kamkamas Highway, which climbs and descends through thousands of acres of unspoilt wilderness. And other than, perhaps, March, known locally not as spring, but as mud season, there isn't a time of year I don't enjoy driving in New England. Summer is verdant, autumn truly resplendent, and winter bright and sparse, until, of course, around 4 p.m. when it's dark and sparse. But best of all, in my opinion, is Maine's law prohibiting billboards along the side of the highway, which allows even the most major thoroughfare to feel secondary to the state's wilderness. And so I was totally spoiled to spend my adult life driving through maximal beauty and minimal traffic. Last year, my family and I moved to Cholula, Mexico. We were way too jet-lagged to pay much attention to the staggering levels of traffic as our taxi extricated us from Benito Juarez International Airport in Mexico City and carried us southeast to our new home in the state of Puebla. We had no car those first few weeks, and I remember observing closely our taxi and Uber drivers trying to decipher the driving culture they were navigating for the day when I would be behind the wheel. I started to figure out when signs were directives and when they were subjective. I noticed the four different levels of police vehicles and which was most likely to stop you for running a light. I observed when drivers gave way and when they forced a merge and how pedestrians made their calculations to certain themselves through traffic and how the local wildlife, namely bands of rogue street dogs, did the same. The greater metropolitan area of Puebla, I later learned, 
Island is about the same size and population as Los Angeles, which is fitting since Puebla's full name is Puebla de Los Angeles. With its similarly large and complicated highways, expanse of low residential areas, and collection of shiny modern towers, not to mention the abundance of palm trees and billboards, I found myself in about as different of a driving place as is possible from rural Maine. In Maine, with plenty of good roads and so little traffic, it's easy to figure getting any place at just about a minute a mile. Pueblo, on the other hand, follows Cher Horowitz's dad's rule of thumb from Clueless. Everywhere in LA takes 20 minutes, he truth bombs over the phone. Same here, even if your destination is just a few kilometers away as the crow flies. Along with adapting to the higher density of traffic, my major transition to driving here has been orienting myself to a completely different city planning structure than I'm used to. Though I know many cities, of course, in the U.S. are built on sensible 19th century grid systems, the New England cities of my life have retained the urban sensibility of their early modern English settlers, which is to say chaos, now too enshrined by time and status to be reincarnated into anything sensible. And of course, outside the cities, New England roads are often built along old trading paths established by the first peoples who in turn followed the paths established by animals in search of salt licks. Therefore, the navigation system in New England often follows markers such as nature trees and stone walls, old cemeteries, farms, gas stations. I could easily tell you how to cut across from Route 1 to my grandmother's house in Freedom, Maine, based solely on these categories of markers. Mexico, of course, has its own layering of colonial and first peoples in its cities, and Cholula and Puebla are potent examples of these. Puebla, the capital city of the state that Cholula is in, was founded in 1531 by the Spanish, and archaeological evidence suggests that, in contrast to Mexico City, Puebla was built afresh, rather than on top of a pre-existing indigenous settlement. There's a legend that a bishop dreamt of being called by angels to build a city on the spot it lies today, hence the appellation de los Angeles. However, the legend may have just been a cover-up for the fact that the city stands at the convenient midway point of trade routes between Mexico City and Veracruz. Regardless, Pueblo was designed and built in adherence to the highest principles of Spanish urban architecture, and is accordingly considered one of the purest built examples of the form in the world. Nearly 500 years since its conception, the city remains highly structured with a sophisticated and logical block system that predates the formation of any single main street in my home state by about 200 years. And Puebla still considers itself a pretty world-class city, and with some right. It has outstanding universities, museums, food, artisanal specialties like Talavera pottery, and architecture. And the Pueblanos know it, or so I'm told. They are known nationally for being somewhat haughty, liking the finer things in life, and attempting to display a level of Spanish cultural purity. Or so I'm told. Cholula, on the other hand, lies just a few kilometers to the west of Puebla. And it 
is considered to be the longest inhabited city in all of the Americas, with a settlement estimated to have begun a few centuries before the start of the Common Era. And though it too now has a grid system, it feels so very different than Puebla. Whereas Puebla flaunts the purity of its Spanish heritage, the faces of Cholula insist upon their ancient and immovable presence. And Cholula remains home to a high percentage of indigenous Mexicans. The Cholulatecans, in fact, remain one of the very few independent city-states at the height of the nearby Aztec Empire, a status that more or less continued even as the Spanish established Puebla so nearby. Just a side note of something I learned recently, our housekeeper, Sylvia, was talking on the phone to someone the other day as I was driving her, and, and I realized she wasn't speaking Spanish. When I asked her afterwards, you know, how's it going? She said she was talking to her parents, and her parents don't speak Spanish. They speak the indigenous language of the area. She speaks Nahuatl. And Spanish, in fact, was only a language he learned at age 18. Anyway, the, the independence of the Chalutecans is still visible in the town itself. First of all, instead of a Spanish colonial square at its center, there is an enormous mound thought upon arrival by the Spanish to be a conveniently and neatly shaped hill, but in reality it's a pyramid greater in volume than the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, though to this day it is overgrown by vegetation. There's now a Catholic church on top, but even that doesn't redefine the underlying structure very much, for the structure of that overgrown pyramid is less in conversation with the church on top of it than the volcanoes around it. The Great Pyramid of Cholula is in fact built at the exact midpoint of the vast central highland valley defined to the northeast by La Malincha and to the southwest by Popocatepetl. A few weeks ago at the autumnal equinox, the residents of Cholula experienced, as they have for a few thousand years, the sun setting precisely into the crater of Popo, evidence of a sacred astrological significance to the city's placement. However different Puebla and Cholula are in their histories and urban DNA, the Spanish block system they share has proved surprisingly difficult spatial language for me to learn. You see, New England, with all its graveyards and stone walls and peculiar trees, should by all rights be more complicated to navigate than the sensibly marked streets with numbers and cardinal direction signs in relation to the central squares the Spanish have done. And yet, having grown up to learn to navigate by built and natural markers rather than logic, I've struggled driving around here. To me, everywhere I go in any direction is merely a series of four-way intersections, one after another along the grid. Actually, that's not true for everyone driving here. Every Mexican knows the system of north-south by east-west streets that make up the four-way intersections and their respective one-way systems that are more or less consistent. And they can easily picture, therefore, where they are in relation to the central square and to where they want to go. I, on the other hand, I arrived trying desperately to find my bearings based on markers. Unfortunately, 
every intersection in Cholula shares the same few potential markers. A church, an OXO convenience store, a hardware store, a taco stand, and or a chicken rotisserie. I couldn't find conclusive stats for all of these, but to give you a sense of how very persuasive these are, you should know that there are almost 22,000 OXOs in Mexico. Uh, there are 93 million Catholic churches and a full 100% of Mexican citizens live within 400 meters of a taco stand. All of which is to say, rather than spending the past year figuring out how to use the street numbering system, I've instead memorized the unique combination of churches, oxos, taco stands, hardware stores, and chicken rotisseries at any given intersection within a few dozen square kilometers. Does it make sense? No. Have I figured out a better way? Also, and this is the moment when I want to reveal that this essay is not actually about driving or urban planning or tacos, though I definitely should add a culinary beat to the podcast sometime. But anyway, this has all been a rather roundabout in New England way of getting to what I've been thinking about this week, which is language. You see, well, I've spent the last year figuring out how to get around. And, and that's been necessary, of course. We need to get to grocery stores and dentist appointments and museums and unfortunately Walmarts. But while I've been doing all that driving, my kids have become fluent in Spanish. And this is not a brag, it's just a fact. Okay, hey, it's a little brag, but whatever, I'm proud of them. Vivi got there first. She was seven when we arrived here and she's now eight and a half. She was actually the most apprehensive about learning Spanish because at seven she was old enough to understand the concept of a new language, but not able to read or study Spanish workbooks the way her older sister was. But she's social and expressive by nature. And I remember when a couple months in she first asked to have a friend over, this was last year, and she reassured me that she'd be able to explain to them whatever I needed to say. And Sure enough, she was soon having playdates at other people's houses and then sleepovers, till finally sometime last spring or summer, I forget when, but I heard her sleep talking in Spanish. And so now when we go to the dentist or get her hair cut, she can communicate everything she wants to, and I'm just there to pay the bill and make the next follow-up appointment. I've also heard Julian speak Spanish in his sleep, but that was only this past week. I thought for sure, since he was only four when we arrived, that he would be the first out the door linguistically. But early on, he figured out his teachers speak English, and so he managed to coast for quite a little while. Last winter, his teachers remarked at their surprise he wasn't more advanced, and they recommended I send him off on more playdates. Sure enough, he found his playdate soulmate, a boy in his class named Joshua. Joshua's mom, Magali, is someone I've really come to enjoy, and he can speak English with me, so the four of us happily have been hanging out ever since. And so that's how Julian and Joshua have started hanging out all their free time together, and many weekends they sleep over, and that's how Julian has gotten to be so good at Spanish. And then there's Aurelia. When I first proposed moving to Mexico and mentioned needing to learn Spanish, she said, and I kid you not, oh good, I already know everything in English, so it makes sense I learn another language. Sure enough, pre-departure, she enjoyed her workbooks and Duolingo, but upon arrival, her introverted nature took over. I think she paid attention enough in the initial months to be able to keep up in school, but her language eventually plateaued and 
around the same time, she began reading these massive YA fantasy novels. And though I did once hear her summarize her favorite epic in Spanish to a classmate, for the most part, she wasn't quite as fluid as the others. But I think Aurelia and I are a lot alike. I should add, before I move on, her teacher revealed to me recently that Aurelia actually understands much more Spanish than she lets on. But still, the point remains, she and I are, are far less at ease in Spanish than Vinny and Julian, who move between their two languages now with facility and clarity. Aurelia and I, on the other hand, are, I think, still running everything we want to say in Spanish through the filter of English. Other than a few phrases, expressions, and salutations, there are few sentences I speak or write in Spanish that I've not first conceived of in my head in English. I try not to give myself too hard of a time about this. At least I am able to process many of my basic thoughts and needs into Spanish. Really, it could be worse than being slow and stilted and possibly, probably, okay, definitely grammatically imperfect. I could be one of those people who goes to a new country and doesn't ever try to learn the language or insists on speaking their own language just louder. Britain's on holiday in Europe. I am looking at you. In the first weeks and months we were here, I felt proud of the progress I'd made, certainly an understanding and eventually an expression. Oh wow, you've, you've been here only five weeks and never learned Spanish before this? You're doing pretty good, was the feedback I generally received from Mexicans I met. And upon arrival, my kids were in total awe of my handful of phrases and educated guesses at what waiters and taxi drivers were saying. You're the best in the family, they'd say, but I knew it was only a matter of time. And so now, we've been here 15 months, and indeed I have two children who are more or less fluent, and one who's quietly advanced. And then me. Me. Still picking my way through the past tense, and conjugating clumsily in my head. <laughs> I constantly struggle, this is so silly, but to differentiate between the words for 50, 60, and 70. It's ridiculous. But at the farmer's market, I often just hand over a hundred peso bill to avoid the awkwardness. Unless Vivi is there to tell me the number in English. But then I get the awkwardness of her rolling her eyes at my ignorance. But I have been trying lately to advance my language skills. And I've been trying in two ways. The first and most obvious way is that I have really dedicated myself to reading my Spanish book regularly. I have this excellent book called Madrigal's Magic Key to Spanish with illustrations by Andy Warhol. I don't know what that's about, but I love it. And then I use as a bookmark a little notebook that I jot down what I learn as I learn it. And that's definitely helpful. I credit Madrigal with all my newfound knowledge of the past tense, though God help me when I encounter the past perfect and subjunctive. And then there's the other way of then engaging the language learning process. And that, of course, is because I'm a writer, we thinking about and writing about how I think about language. Some of my earliest memories of language learning, I've realized, were at the exact same ages as my kids when we all came to Mexico. Except unlike them, I never had a truly immersive language learning experience. I lived in Connecticut. 
I have the Disney movie Pocahontas on VHS. It had been so many decades since I'd watched Pocahontas when a couple years ago my kids asked to watch it. I was initially pretty apprehensive, having been disappointed and frankly disgusted upon rewatching other classics of my youth in the 90s. So I did what any good millennial parent would do. I googled around and I was surprised to find a piece in the Atlantic called Revisiting Pocahontas at 20. In this 2015 piece, author Sophie Gilbert writes, The movie might have fudged some facts to allow for a compelling romantic story, but it has a progressive attitude when it comes to interpreting history, depicting the English settlers as plunderers, searching for non-existent gold, who are intent upon murdering the, quote, savages they encountered in the process. The film also seemed to embrace an environmentalist message, with Pocahontas showing Smith the absurdity of relentlessly taking things from the earth instead of seeing its potential. It was a radical story about female agency and empathy, disguised as a rather sappy romance. I should add, Gilbert doesn't get, and didn't ask for, the definitive word on the movie. And I appreciated reading Chris Bodner's response on the complexity of any assessment. I should add that at renkowriting.com slash podcast, I've linked to both of these pieces. But after reading Gilbert's piece, I decided to go ahead and watch the movie with the kids, in hopes also of talking about it afterwards. All of this is a rather long way of saying that, upon rewatching the film, I was surprised to observe much of the nuance that Gilbert pointed out regarding the environment, the depiction of English greed, and female agency. For example, did you remember that Pocahontas rejected John Smith's request to go with him to England at the end of the movie? I hadn't. I was totally wowed to see a woman in a Disney movie choose her family and culture over love. Take that, The Little Mermaid. Yeah, I was really shocked at the lack of nuance the film displayed when it came to language. The quick and dirty of it is that the film acknowledges that Pocahontas doesn't understand John Smith when they first meet, and vice versa, but a swirl of pastel and the chorus from an anthropomorphic willow tree singing, listen with your heart, you will understand. And just like that, Pocahontas both understands and speaks English. Please note that John Smith does not understand or speak her language. Anyway, re-watching this, I realized it is no wonder that to this day, I am a half-assed language learner. With swirling pastel leaves and a waifish lyric as my template, I cannot tell you how dissatisfying it was in sixth grade when I first took French and encountered vocab lists and conjugation tables. A decade later, I, I did have a more positive experience uh, with language learning. I had a sexy European boyfriend who encouraged me with kisses to pick up words in his language, but suffice to say the relationship was short and without the kissing his language didn't seem worth pursuing. And to this day, when I'm asked what superhero power I want, I respond that I'd like a paper cut from a radioactive dictionary to give me the ability to speak, read, and understand in any language. But if wishes were horses, am I right? I'd be riding around Cholula on a horse talking to everyone in Spanish and Nahuatl and who knows what else. But like Vivian, I am social. 
and I am expressive. Unlike her, I don't have the soft and flexible brain of an eight-year-old and six hours of immersion every day. Instead, my work is thoroughly immersed in the English language. This writing consultancy business is called Written English Collaboration. <laughs> and like, why go from a language in which you operate with complete ease and mastery so much so that week after week you can write a 5,000 word essay in just a few hours? the quieted discomfort of a limited vocabulary and unfamiliar labyrinthine grammatical structure. And that's been one of the things I've learned this year. Not being able to speak, not being able to express myself fully and with nuance, it's been hard. Many days as I'm out and about, I feel small, knowing I'm limited in my communication to the present and simple future, and only just recently the simple past tense, at least in the five verbs I feel like I truly am comfortable using. But as a result, I can't ask complex questions. I can't convey any conditionality. I can't joke or be self-deprecating. I can't build relationships with casual interactions beyond the establishing facts of where I'm from, why I'm here, and how hard it is to learn Spanish. But will you believe me when I tell you that my kids are really good? Again, I can get around. Nouns are no problem, and I've mastered the grocery store and menus. I can read road signs, business signs, out-of-order signs. I worship at the altar of cognates, and I can muddle through just fine in most situations. Speaking with a taxi driver, housekeeper, store assistant, but again, I can't verbalize all that I observe and wonder or need to explain, like when I'm being pulled over by the police. Though fortunately in this one case, I think my lack of Spanish has gotten me out of paying some bribes because they see I'm hopeless at understanding when I'm being shaken down. But then here's the other thing. While I can't say all that I want to say, and I don't understand all the words I hear, I have learned that communication does not come down wholly to vocabulary and grammar, thankfully for me, because language is also highly emotional. I know when I coach folks in their writing, I try to attune myself to them emotionally as a means of understanding them, of building trust, and sensing when to push and when to pull back. Writing is such an intimate process. And it requires the creation of a responsive emotional state to support it. And I've long known how to do that professionally and in life. But it turns out, unlike navigation or verbalization, emotional attunement is transferable. Sure, words and mores are lost in translation, as the saying goes, but connecting eyes, observing micro-expressions, responsive to a smile or a word catching the throat. It's remarkable true Pocahontas's grandmother willow tree lady spirits messages. Listen to your heart. You will understand. My life isn't a Disney movie. Listening and understanding aren't sufficient to somehow magically be able to speak a foreign language. It did not help me the other day in the auto body shop, and I was definitely grateful to have a couple simple verbs and a lot of pointing. 
and it turns out that listening and understanding are critical to living amid a foreign language and to connecting with people. And perhaps it's a good thing for someone as hyperverbal as I am. I swear sometimes the fast-paced dialogue of the West Wing and Gilmore Girls is my love language. To experience an extended period of time not being able to speak. Because my not being able to speak means I'm strengthening my capacity for nonverbal understanding. As I said, when I started thinking about how I think about language, I hit on the thought that language is not limited to words. I truly don't think that's just an easy out for me. I am still reading and transcribing my takeaways from Madrigal's Magic Key to Spanish. That book is big, man, and it takes up at least 30% of the space in my purse. But by carrying it with me, every day it continually asserts itself, non-verbally communicating its importance and necessity until I have internalized its contents enough that I don't need to carry it around. Okay, this is when I should tell you there's actually another piece to all this. I know, I've made you go through driving and language and now this other thing, but I think these are all interconnected. So hear me out. The last piece I've been thinking about is the difference between being an immigrant and an expat. I'm in a Facebook group called Expats in New Mexico and I'd say a good 5% of the content is really helpful. The other 95% is goddamn scattershot. But I saw someone the other day pose the question I put firmly in the top 5%. They wrote, what's the difference between an immigrant and an expat? It was one of those questions that I thought was so good. And I decided not to read any of the comments, which would invariably piss me off. And so instead, I just sat with the question. What's the difference between an immigrant and an expat? I just tell you, at first, I was tempted to say... There is no difference at all. Both are groups of people transgressing borders, and maybe there's an opportunity to humble one group and elevate the other by viewing them as equals. But, of course, in reality, that is not the case. The answer, I'm pretty sure, can come down to one word. Volition. An expat has the privilege that allows a desire to live elsewhere possible. An immigrant, on the other hand, generally doesn't have that privilege to pick up and go, and even more rarely has the privilege to pick up and return. One group gets a flexible date round-trip ticket, and the other gets a one-night. One group gets to learn the language on their own time and at their own pace, while the other better get up to speed super quick or risk drown. One gets to be seen as contributing to their host economy, even validating the desirability of their host culture, and reveling in their foreignness with a community of other foreign nationals. Whereas the other group better not be a drain on the economy. And they, they better not bring the neighborhood down. And they definitely should neither mix too much with the dominant culture, nor enjoy too much of their own ethnic subculture. lovely as Maine is. It's largely culturally and ethnically homogenous. And I was worried about raising kids worthy of the challenges of the 21st century in the whitest state in the nation. I tried when we lived there to find other ways to incorporate the world into our lives, 
For example, for almost four years, we hosted a family from Burundi in our home, and my kids see those three Burundian teenagers as their siblings. And I wanted my kids to see, even if they couldn't quite understand it wholly at their young ages, the challenges of joining a new culture and the vital importance of supporting people as they make that transition. When I thought about us moving to Mexico, I hoped it would, among other things, build their empathy for the experience of those in the world who relocate, who must leave their landscape, their mother language, their traditions, and their reference points. And of course, that's not wholly been the experience being Americans outside the U.S. Being an American outside the U.S. does not require totally leaving behind English or our traditions or cultural references because, of course, these have all been so broadly exported. You can get Walmart and Netflix and shitty pizza from Domino's all over Mexico, not just in the border towns, as I'd assumed. Amid the richness of the Mexican tradition of Dia de los Muertos, you can buy cheesy polyester witch costumes and plush jack-o'-lantern throw pillows. Despite not having Thanksgiving here, my local bougie supermarket hawks decorative signs that say thankful and give thanks in English, though they stop short of anything pilgrim-related. One last example. At Christmas, the radio playlists are the same. Entirely familiar melange of Mariah Carey, Paul McCartney, and the Rat Pack. Of course, there are many, many, many aspects of our life here that are distinctly Mexican. For example, I can find Coca-Cola and Jarritos everywhere, but have to trawl at the bottommost shelves for any hope of a dusty Dr. Pepper. However, U.S. culture is rarely too far away, especially if you have the money to upgrade your hot morning atole to a flat white. And so in this attempt to separate my kids from U.S. culture, in order to build the empathetic and interculturally competent children I want to step out into a century, certain to bring the highest levels of global human migration, I've discovered just how much the people in other countries are still being put in a position of adapting to American culture, language, and practices. Turns out, someone doesn't need to move to the U.S. to see the primacy of English language skills in business. Someone doesn't need to be thousands of miles from the nearest atole stand to have made the switch to Starbucks. And you don't need to be facing a, a fleet of conquistadors or English merchants or gifts of blankets impregnated with smallpox to see your land being taken over, your languages and traditions dying off. I want to go back for a minute to the language thing. I don't think I said this before, but I think Spanish is a truly terrific language. Though, of course, it has some irregularities. All languages do. For the most part, it's incredibly consistent and easy to learn. Whenever I do buckle down and get through a new conjugation or the rules of direct and indirect objects, I'm inevitably completely impressed by the thoroughly sensible rules, spelling, and pronunciation. By contrast, 
I spent our first year here teaching English to middle schoolers, and I couldn't help but feel for them as I tried to guide them through the spelling, pronunciation, and meaning of words in English like through, though, thought, thorough, tough, and touch. And how the hell do you explain to a 12-year-old that the past tense of most English verbs is indicated by an ed at the end like hooked and walked and brushed, except that sometimes a past tense is indicated by a change in the vowel in the middle, such as write and wrote, run and ran, swim and swam, sweep and swept, think and thought. Hopeless! Within a short time of living here, I came to the conclusion that the Spanish, whether in their grammar or their cities, really came up with some pretty sensible systems that should be much easier to learn and use. And yet, as a native English speaker and a New Englander, I remain thoroughly acclimated to the irregularities and preposterously contradictory conventions I was born into. Speaking and writing with the linguistic equivalent of windy roads. And why is it windy and not windy? That can only be navigated by familiarity with the antiquated markers of old cemetery stone walls and the peculiarity of tree gnarls. And the fact that I know how to spell gnarls proves my point. I should be able to learn the Spanish conjugations and the city grid system and be grateful that my brain is not forced to parse out theirs, theirs, and theirs for the first time. And yet, as the world changes, so do languages. As people move, so do languages. As groups gain and lose power, so do their languages. Part of the reason I'm writing this essay is to extend some grace to myself for not having mastered Spanish yet. Hell, I have barely intermediated Spanish yet. But we can't all have the soft brains and social malleability of my eight-year-old. What matters is I am trying. And when I can't take in all the words, I work extra hard to take in the emotional context. Meanwhile, I am grateful to the many people I've met here who have extended patience and guidance to me and my kids since arriving in Cholula. And I'm grateful to have friends who speak with me in English while helping me with my Spanish. And if I could complain of one thing, however, is that too often people apologize to me for their English. I recognize this thinking from my years working with students who grew up speaking other languages. Too often, these students felt hesitant at calling English their own, let alone making friends with it. And that makes sense. That's normal. That being said, it was a bilingual Ghanaian American student who shifted my thinking about this forever. It was about eight years ago when I met her, Esther. Esther had grown up in New York. She had redefined the spoken word scene at the New England College where we met and studied abroad in India. After graduation, she went on to receive a prestigious fellowship to teach English in South Africa, and she's now a poet, and I highly recommend her first book of poetry, which is called Light Soup. Anyway, Esther did what poets do with such ease. She found a new combination of words to tell a truth. I remember in the essay I was helping her with, she recounted teaching English at a girls' school in India when a student broke down in apologies for her, quote, bad English. 
And Esther went on to recount comforting the girl, not to be mad at her, quote, jealous tongue that didn't want to relinquish its mother language in order to speak English. And that image of the student in India and Esther's words, jealous tongue, have always stayed with me. To this day, when people apologize to me for their English, I remind them it is I who have lived here. And it is my responsibility and privilege to learn their language. And that the English they give me is a gift I receive with only appreciation and never criticism. Because language is about confidence and exchange. And because otherwise, language too easily becomes about inadequacy and social divisions. Henry Higgins, I'm looking at you. What is the point of that? Don't we have enough already of inadequacy and social divisions in the world without shaming anyone trying to connect with the world beyond their own? Building confidence in narrative and in English is the fundamental mission I founded Renko to accomplish. Though it seems incongruent at times when I tell people I'm an English language writer and a writing coach living in Mexico trying to learn Spanish, I believe it's been a necessary experience to extend my own empathy in order to know firsthand what it feels like to meet a language anew and try and make friends with it. When I was 17, we were living in Connecticut and our town was surrounded on three sides by New York State. This made learning how to drive on a Connecticut learner's permit logistically ridiculous, for I could barely drive us anywhere before hitting the New York border. I was always a fairly confident driver, and I remember my mother being weary of the density of traffic in our metropolitan area, and so she would often take the risk of letting me drive, even over the border into New York, confident I could manage it, until the point when we got anywhere near Manhattan and we would switch. Until there was that one time forgot to switch. <laughs> I don't remember if it was an engrossing NPR story or some good old-fashioned Gilmore Girls style banter, but I remember the moment of realization when we noticed I was driving down FDR Drive. The traffic was flowing thick and fast like hot molasses, and I just had to go with it down the eastern course of the island until entering the grid system of the interior. There was no time for hesitation. I just had to drive. My mother was in the passenger seat, helping me navigate, calming me down better than Murray or Cher when Dion found herself on the highway. I forgot where we were going, but we did eventually arrive. And I learned that even though I was basically from the Connecticut idyll of Stars Hollow, I could drive illegally down FDR Drive if I needed to. I'm so glad my mother let me drive over the border and didn't freak out when we found ourselves in Manhattan because she taught me, well, there's another tough English past tense. Why is it taught, not teached? Whatever. She taught me that I can adapt. I can get up to speed, literally. And I'll tell you, I've never felt so American as driving through the streets of New York. I've never stopped loving the thrill of finding myself too far in to stop, even if I'm hopelessly over my head. Thank you for listening to Rencast. Please subscribe and spread the word about our little show. 
By the way, a transcript of this and every episode lives at rencowriting.com slash podcast. If you would like help becoming more confident in yourself and your writing, head over to rencowriting.com. I can help with personal, professional, and creative projects, as well as admissions and application essays. I'll be there if you want another chair pulled up to your writing desk.